Welcome back, everyone. Jose Nino here with another installment of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by the Z-Man. He is the host of the Z-Blog Power Hour podcast and is a regular columnist at Tacky Magazine. Before we delve into the main topics, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I've been at this, I guess, about 10 years now. My site, thezman.com, been around, well, I've held the domain since mid-1990s. I actually registered it as a bit of a gag. Uh, it's kind of one of those funny twists of fate. You know, back in the old, old olden times, when you signed up for an internet connection, they assigned you a name, and they kept assigning me the Z-Man, Z-Man, something or other. And uh, it just became kind of a joke. And so uh, when you could register your own domain, I registered at thezman.com as a gag, really, and started using it as an email. And and then, you know, I just kind of forgot about it. But then about 10 years ago, I started writing, and I figured, what the heck, I might as well use a domain for something. And really, the whole idea was that I would just use it because I owned it, and I had a, had a server it was registered to, so everything was there. It was just lazy, really. I thought, well, you know, if I, if I actually enjoy doing this, I'll... I'll come up with some clever branding, you know, all that kind of stuff. And well, one thing led to another and the Z-Man became a brand that was worth keeping. And everyone said, oh, what a great idea. That was very clever. So I so I stuck with it. But uh, yeah, I write for Tacky. I do a weekly column for them. I've written for other places. I've written, I wrote something for American Greatness. I don't, it's one of those things. I don't write for other people all that much. I do get requests for it. I don't know. I mean, we'll see how it goes. I write something every day on my site. I do a weekly podcast or every Friday. I have a, a pay-per-view side. I do a Sunday podcast every Sunday on my Subscribestar site. And I've been at it for about 10 years now. And you know, it's one of those weird things that just kind of happened. I didn't really have a, any desire to be a writer or an internet philosopher or any of those kind of stuff. It just kind of happened. I used to haunt the comment sections at various websites. And a guy at National Review, one of their moderators, he said, you know, People are more interested in your comments than they are the, the stuff that's posted here. You should just <laughs> start your own site. And, it was, and, and one of the things that was funny, because one of the things he also said is that, that the writers there, they, they, were, they feared seeing me turn up in the comment section of their uh. post because they knew it was going to be a bad day for them. So, you know, I, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, this guy's right. You know, if I post a comment on National Review's comment section, I'd have 50 replies to me. And the uh, you know, and there would be the grand total of sixty comments on the on the post. You know, in other words, it was clear. I mean, it was obvious. So I thought, what the heck, you know? And I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I just kind of farted around with you know. I looked around at bloggers and I did the cut and paste type stuff. And and then uh, I don't know, probably about five years ago, some uh, a, a Canadian academic. Well, let's see, I don't know when it was, but some Canadian academic sent me an email and he said uh, I, I wrote something, just a long essay on Roman Empire or something. I don't remember what it was. And this guy was a a classics professor. And he said, you know, you, your serious stuff, when you actually put your mind to it, it's actually really good. You should do that. Stop doing this copy and paste stuff and commentary. There's a million guys doing that. Why don't you just try writing essays? So I started doing it, and all of a sudden I got an audience. And last time I checked, I don't know, I had like 250,000 monthly readers. So and it's just kind of one of those things that happens. You just fall into, and and I enjoy it. You know, I actually like it. I like writing these short essays. I, I've had fun with it. I've met a lot of people as a consequence. And, and I've gotten involved in politics in a way that I never would have. You know, I had kind of fallen out of politics, really. But now, you know, I go to events and uh, meet people and uh, do online stuff. And, and it's fun and enjoyable. And I, I, I feel as if I'm, I'm engaging in politics in a way that is not only satisfactory to me, but I think helpful to other people. There's a reward there that I never would have imagined that could come from politics. You know, there's a lot of people who will send me emails and say, you know, you you really clarified something for me. You know, that you know, the way you put it, it really made a lot of sense. And now I I understand my own mind better. And and that's that's always a nice thing to hear. And so I enjoy it. How would you describe yourself ideologically speaking? Well, I'm not really an ideological guy. I've been using the term dissident right. I actually own the domain name, as a matter of fact, the dissidentright.com. I've been using that term for about 10 years, 15 years. I don't know. So it's a long time. So long, I don't remember when I started using it. I used to say that I was a, you know, on the right or maybe a paleocon because I didn't have another term to use. But John Darbyshire coined the term dissident right about 20, 20 years ago or so. And I just decided that I would use it. And basically what it means to be a dissident is to be in dissent from the prevailing orthodoxy with regards to the human condition and human organization. Biology is real. Evolution is real. Genetics are real. 
These are all real things. And as a result, we know that sex is real. Humans come in two copies, boys and girls. Uh, We know that race is real. We know that ethnicity is real. We know that hierarchy is real. We we know these things. These are things that are based in our science. The same science that allows us to build a tall building or build a bridge over a ravine is the same thing that tells us these things about human nature and the nature of human organization. And what that means is that you you inevitably, when you, you accept the diversity of mankind, you realize that, hey, there's no ideal system. It, you, you, you really do come at it from the demastery sort of right, the classic continental European right, which was always said, every people has their way of organizing themselves and you have to respect it. That, that just, it's just how they do things. They have their own traditions, their own institutions, and it, it rises from the mist of time and no one knows exactly how it got that way, but that's just how it is. And we see this. When we see it in the United States. Yeah, it's, it's so obvious. If you travel around this country, those original differences are still there. And as a result, though, I mean, for, you know, in terms of politics, it means that whatever works for a people is what's going to work for a people. It might not be a democratic system necessarily. You see this in sub-Saharan Africa, that they can't make democracy work. It's a disaster. Every time they try, it's always awful. It ends, it ends worse than any other the choices they have. Uh, the same is true with um, the Arab populations. They're not really good at it. The closest you get is the Iranians with their sort of democratic uh, Isla- Islamism. And that works for them. And that's fine. I don't, I don't, why would I object, object to a system that most Iranians seem to think is pretty good? And, and that's, uh, I think, for true for all people. You know, the Chinese will never have liberal democracy. I mean, hell, we can't make liberal democracy work, and we invented it, so it's unlikely that the Chinese will make it work. And, and they, they get that. They know it won't work for them. They tried communism. That didn't work. So, you know, they, they, uh, they understand these things. So I'm not really an ideologue. I think, I think whatever works for a people will work for a people, as long as they accept who they are. They accept their identity and, and embrace themselves for who they are. I mean, and people used to do this up until recent, this, this bizarre sort of anti-culture, anti-human political philosophy of our ruling elites. It really is a novel thing. People used to get, I mean, even in my lifetime, people used to understand that, hey, you know, people are different. You just accept that. So I wouldn't say that I'm an ideologue, although I suppose that's that's a bit of an ideology. I I don't know. I I really, I haven't worked out some deep set of rules about what it means to be the man on the dissident right other than what I just gave you, which is really just an acceptance of reality. I mean, that's really, I think, it springs from a lot of the sort of empiricism that comes in from the right, from people who are in STEM fields like myself. John Darby Sire was a STEM guy. You come into politics and you come at it from that sort of perspective that you know, there are right sets of answers, but not necessarily a specific right answer. And it really is situational. And, and you know, just using logic to say what's best for what kind of people. So, you know, I think that's really... I mean, I guess it's an ideology. I don't know. I wouldn't really call it an ideology. It's more of a persuasion. You know, as the neocons would say, it's a, it's a persuasion. That's more or less where I'm at. I tend to be in the paleocon, paleo-libertarian spectrum, but I'm not a universalist whatsoever. I tend to be particularist when it comes to my philosophical outlook because you just can't do like a copy pasta of like, say, like Northern European style democracy and impose that on, say, like you mentioned, like Iran or even China for that matter. I think that stuff won't work. And plus, I don't want to be on like a planet where everything is just like one gigantic, like co-working space or a shopping mall. That's really dull. Uh, I like like variety in systems to choose from. Well, I mean, you're in Texas, right? Yep. Well, within Texas itself, you have these different strains. If you look at the migratory patterns of how Texas was populated, you obviously have a, a fair amount of people, the you know, Norte Mexicanos, you know, the, the people who come out of the Spanish occupation of those areas. But you also have people who migrated from the Deep South, from Appalachia, from the Midwest. And you know, if you look at a map and see, look at these migratory patterns, well, guess what? Texas is a big state, and not all of Texas is the same. There's lots of differences. You go up to the north where the little top hat area is, it's it's like the Midwest, while down in the southern Gulf area, that's much more closer to what you'd expect in Alabama, Mississippi. You know, it, they're just different. And inevitably, the people in these various areas organize themselves naturally differently. The communities are slightly different. The neighborhoods are different. You know, it's just these small differences because it's just the way people are. Well, why is that wrong? That's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I, I, why would anybody object to it? Well, nobody does. You know, really, nobody does. But there's this 
weird desire in Western political thought to come up with this universal system that applies everywhere. And it really, I think a lot of it arises out of Christianity, particularly Protestant Christianity, and even more particularly American Protestantism, public Protestantism, because, you know, it's, there's this one way and it has to be only one way because if there's multiple ways, well, then, then maybe, you know, your way's wrong. You know, in, in other words, if you if there's four or five ways in organizing a society and they're fine, then that means that, well, maybe yours is not always right. And that really does come from, you know, sort of Yankee Protestantism, that there can only be one way. And then this is the way in which to be on the right side of uh, angels and how you organize your society. But I don't think most people think that way. I think most people, most people like variety and diversity. I know I do. I mean, I, I like going to different places and seeing different things and seeing how people live. I mean, I think 99% of people are happy that way. They like diversity. Yeah, I think this segues into another point that I wanted to raise because really, if we look at the past decade or so, we've seen a rejection of like the conventional neoconservative and neoliberal paradigm that's dominated in Washington, D.C., and especially on the right, because you you have witnessed some interesting changes since Donald Trump was elected in 2016. And I see his victory as a body blow against the neocon consensus of never-ending wars, free trade, and mass migration, for example. And while Trump couldn't get like a second bid, there's still a realignment, if you will, that's taking place within the GOP. Do you believe that this like national populist, right-wing populist current will be the future of the GOP? No, I actually, I think the Republican Party, I think we're going to go through a period of bankruptcy of sorts. You know, the American empire was so deformed in a lot of ways by the Cold War, by the 20th century itself. And we've always been an empire that's never understood ourselves to be an empire. We're always running around telling people that, oh, no, we, we like a rules-based society and we want people to chart their own course and all this other stuff. And then, and then we blow them up if they don't actually do it the way we want. And you know, we have this blind spot to us. But I think just... It's beyond reform. I think we're going to go through a period of collapse. Not a lot different than what happened in the 10, 15 years after the end of the Soviet Union. That period was terrible for the Russian people, and it still influences them today. But it was this great sort of dismantling of the old system so that a new system, and it really wasn't new. It was really the sort of natural order of things could rise again outside of the wreckage of this artificial construct, which was the Soviet political economic system. And I think the same thing will happen in the United States. I think we're already seeing this. I mean, our government really can't do things that it's supposed to do, like fix roads and bridges and can't run schools properly. can't do anything really well. And people are generally increasingly dissatisfied with it. It's hard to find anyone who accepts anything that's in the mass media at face value. I mean, really old people still kind of believe the news, but most people under the age of 65 have gotten very cynical about these things. And I think we're, we're, we're headed into a 10, 15-year period here. We may be already a few years on the road, you know, starting with, say, Trump, in which people just look around and say, why am I, why am I defending this? Well, why am I supporting this? None of this works. You know, our government doesn't do the basic things. I mean, why did we give so far $80 billion to Ukraine? And we can't control our own border. I mean, we, we can't do basic stuff. I mean, look, I mean, you're closer to it than I am, but anyone can find pictures and images and video. I mean, it's a, that's a humanitarian catastrophe that's being allowed to go on. It's yeah, a Serb rush. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, it should. there's no reason why it should. I mean, we should be able to, our government should be able to do those things. And it's just so much like that. And so I think we're headed for a period in which everyone gets disgusted and we have lots of turmoil and churn. I think we're going to have some real difficult economic conditions because the the imperial economy is dependent upon having control of the global financial system. And, and we, we're losing control. We see what's happening with this uh, whole Ukrainian business. So it's going to be a rough ride. But I think in the end, what we're going to probably come at, what will happen is that this artificial construct of the global American empire will crack and break and it'll be painful. But what's going to rise up is the natural regionalism of America, the natural federalism the old, the basic nature of things, and that is, as Americans, one of the things that we kind of accept is that if things aren't working out for you in one place, you can go move someplace else where it's better, it works better for you. You know, this sort of mobility, this elbow room, you know, when I was a kid, they used to actually run cartoons like that. That that was a cool thing about America. We had elbow room. You don't like where you live, move somewhere else, you know. And we'll get back to, to that. 
and it will also get back to a much more responsible sort of center government. We're going to better elite. I mean, I think it's really what the big problem is, is that our current elites are so dysfunctional and so incompetent. And uh, you know, who knows? I mean, it might actually get a little ugly. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I, so I think when, you know, I think they know this too. I think that January 6th thing, as that's what freaked them out, is that they lie away. It's one of those great eye openers. You know, normal people looked at that and said, ah, you know, a bunch of people got a little carried away. No big deal. But that our elites didn't look at it that way. They looked at it and said, holy smokes, they're going to overthrow us. You know, they're, they're going to start hanging us from the trees around here. And, and the reason why they thought that is that they worry about it. And because they know, they know that they're quiet moments. They know they're not, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I don't think... I don't think the path forward is going to be through practical politics. We don't vote our way out of the problems of democracy. I think, you know, in the long run, how I mean, who knows? I might not be around to see it. I'm, a, you know, in my 50s, so it might take a lot longer than I imagined. But I think in the end, we're going to end up with a much more regionalized country, and the federal government should have a, a, a much le- a much smaller role in our lives. You know, most of the things that you care about are going to be taken care of locally. I think that's the future. I think it's a natural future, particularly in the Western Hemisphere. Because, uh, look, if you spend time in South America, this is how things go. Most people don't care about their national government in South America. Why would they? Yeah, that's that's correct. I've lived in South America. And I'm actually originally from Venezuela, actually. And I've lived like in countries like Chile and whatnot. And people there don't really pay attention to national politics as much. There is more trust in local big men, if you will, and other type of figures. And you see this also in uh, Mexico as well that a lot of regional and state level governments there have like more powers. And that's what's like ultimately implementing like a lot of the COVID policies. I have friends in Mexico that that lived like throughout the pandemic and they all told me that it could like vary from state to state in terms of policies. Like some states really locked down and others were much more even handed in in that regard. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about it is that, you know, it used to be this norm in America where you cared, you, you had a passion for your local community and eh, national government, well, you know, whatever it is, because it doesn't really matter. But it changed, of course, in the 20th century as the empire got going. The perfect issue to think about is abortion. And the reason is, is that most Americans, if you sat them down and were honest and they could, you know, force them to be honest or they weren't influenced by what they're supposed to say and all that stuff, they would say it should be a zoning issue. You know, we should handle abortion the same way we handle pawn shops and uh, strip clubs and uh, check cashing places. We keep those over in sort of the fringe area. We just kind of look the blind eye to it. As long as it doesn't get out of control, we leave it over there and we say, okay. So in other words, we wouldn't have some nationalized policy or even state policy on abortion. We'd simply say, well, we have a few areas where we permit an abortion clinic. In, in other words, we, just like we have a few areas where we uh, allow strip joints. You know, we don't put strip joints next to grammar schools. But we <laughs> yeah. put them over, you know what I mean? We put them in industrial areas. You know, they, we, and, you know people know where they are. You know, they're over near that business park, you know, uh, which is not too far from the airport. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is how we would handle it. Because this is how mature people have always handled these kinds of things. We understand that there are certain things that are immoral, but the cost of stamping them out completely is impractical. So we minimize them. And this would this would probably, this kind of approach, cover 90% of the things that people care about. The only things that our federal government really should be doing is trade policy, immigration policy, and defense policy. And our, you know, given that we are on a giant island here between two oceans, our defense policy could pretty much be just a really good Navy. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need anything else. We just have a really good Navy so, so our shipping can be safe. You know, and, and most people wouldn't care. But you know, we live in an empire and we've become conditioned to the rules of empire. We think of it that way. But I think that's part of that, that transition will happen it's slowly. But over time, this old conditioning will give way. It'll be some economic crisis in a way in the process, which we're getting ready to face here this summer. You know, people don't realize I'm old enough, just barely old enough to remember the psychological effects of inflation in this country and energy shortages. It's going to be wild this year because it's not so much the cost, it's the psychology of it. And, you know, every time you go to the store, it's more expensive. Every time you buy gas, you look at that. I mean, it just, it's like somebody walking up and kicking you in the groin every time you gas up your car. You know, it, it's just a constant reminder that something's broken, something's wrong. So we're going to have these things. And, and uh, we'll probably have some weird election results, too. We're probably going to have some lunatic, well, I mean, I've got to say some lunatic end up in the White House. But, I mean, we had Trump and we had Biden. I mean, honestly, I mean, you say what you want about Trump, but I voted for Trump. 
but it's ridiculous to have a TV guy and then a dementia patient in the White House. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure where, where we go from here, but uh, yeah. But you know, I mean, it could be Bernie Sanders, you know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be so. But eventually, the conditioning breaks down, and it's some and and the marketplace does kind of work in this regard. People start to realize that hey, you know what? Maybe we just don't need all of this stuff. Maybe we don't need all of these people lecturing us all the time from Iowa on. And, uh, you know, it eventually just kind of recedes back into its natural order of things. I mean, look, this country should be a lot richer than it is. People don't realize this. I mean, the, the gross inequality of wealth in this country, and I say this as someone who's generally friendly to the marketplace. I mean, it's monstrous. There's no reason for America, as rich as it is in terms of its natural resources and human capital, to have... A, a, you know, poor people like we do, to, to the degree that we have, to have, I mean, I live in Baltimore. When you see the things that I see in Baltimore, you think, wait a second, I, I'm happy if we drug uh, the richest 1,000 people out of their homes, hanged them from a tree, and took all their stuff, and used it to fix West Baltimore. Because it's it's monstrous what goes on here. And I think people are starting, you know, we, we, we can hide from a lot of this stuff because we can live in neighborhoods, you know, and you know, segregate these things and all that. But I think over time, people are going to figure this out and we're going to start to make the kind of, we're going to force the changes on our ruling class one way or another. And so and to a degree, it's going to be a form of populism. And, uh, but it's, I don't think it's going to be the kind of, the scary populism that a lot of people worry about. I think it's just going to be a sort of a natural evolution of a sort of classical utilitarianism. And that is people are going to say, look, I'm, I'm willing to support policies that, give the maximum number of people the maximum amount of happiness. In other words, we come up with a policy that most of us agree on and can like, that's what we'll do. And I won't, I won't allow moral claims or, you know, distractions or any of that kind of stuff. Because that, that really is our problem. We keep we keep being fooled by moral claims. And, and I think it's going to take a while to to uh, to break us up. I know it's kind of a rambling answer, but... Actually, this this actually transitions pretty well into one thing I wanted to ask you, and this is regards to a column that you penned at Tacky Magazine, specifically about common good conservatism, because there is like this movement that's emerging that's challenging conservatism, neoconservatism, and other permutations of legacy conservatism. And you see some notable figures such as like that Harvard Law professor, Adrian Vermeule, and the founder and editor of Compact Magazine, Saurabh Amari, step up to offer this so-called post-liberal, common good conservative alternative. What do you think about this intellectual current? And do you believe that they're a viable alternative to legacy conservatism? Well, I, I have been a little hard on them. I know some of these people. Or I, you know, we're not sharing a bungalow on vacation together, but you know, we, you know, we bump into each other at events and things like that. So, you know, I, I think their heart is in the right place. I think their, you know, their sentiment is there that look, government policy should be about what's best for the people. But I, I think they, they they continue to be trapped in this sort of enlightenment view of the world, and that. Uh, we, you know, we have to have this, uh, you know, everything has to be democratic and everyone has to participate in government. And and that's that's fine. But at some point, you have to say, you have to answer these basic questions, which are who decides and by what authority. And, you know, you can have a democratic system of government if the authority is tradition. Hey, this is who we are. We're, we're Americans in our case. And this is the tradition in which we do things. And people who want to alter those traditions are therefore in violation of the basic code of being an American. And, and that means taking on the left in ways in which these guys have shown no willingness to do. Because when you say to the left that, look, uh, knocking down Confederate statues is immoral because that is a part of our history. It's a part of who we are. And it's, it gives us authority as a people to chart our own course. That's 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 going to war, you know, because you're willing to then say, okay, call me a racist, call me whatever, you know, use all those terms. I don't care because your morality doesn't matter. My morality is superior to yours because my morality is based in the traditions of who we are. And you know, you can add all kinds of things in this. You know, I, I, you know, you being from Texas, I mean, I used to travel to Texas a lot for work, and and I always tell people, if you go to Texas, most people who live in Texas will identify as Texan before American. 
And it's a, it's, a, it's a funny thing. It's just not what you expect it to be. Well, why is that? Well, their, their morality, their sense of identity is based in a tr- set of traditions, a, a culture. You know, this is how we do things here. This is who we are. And, and that's, you, you have to get to that point and say, this is who we are. This is how we do things. And why we do them is because of that. We don't need any further justification. And none of these common good guys will ever go that far because that runs the risk of saying, because ultimately, what that means is that people who will not comport with who we are and how we do things, well, they can't come in. You know, you can't come into our country. You can't be a part of this. And, and that, that's, that's hard to do because obviously it, it runs, particularly for people who have careers in the academy. But it's what you have to do. And that they, they so far have shown no willingness to do it. And, and you know, that's, that's why none of these guys talk about immigration. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be a common good conservative and talk about immigration without getting yourself in trouble, I think, or without giving the game away and saying that your common good conservatism is just a new racket. You know, you don't really mean it. That's actually a really good point. I have noticed uh, among these types that they tend to avoid not just like immigration, but any type of discussion with regards to race and demographics. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Vermeule has hinted that he is amenable to open borders if it's like from like predominantly Catholic countries. It's just like, it's a weird form of, it's like a new brand of multiculturalism that they're promoting. Though I do think they have some interesting ideas and in some cases, I do prefer their alternatives to the present neocon consensus. But at the end of the day, I, I think it still like falls short of what I see as like ideal for society. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I always tell people, I don't, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to travel in Europe, but if you travel in Europe, I always tell people, go to the churches. I mean, I do this everywhere I go. I go to wherever people worship because there's two things, there's two places you go in any country. You want to find out about the people, you find out. Where they where they keep their gods and where they buy their stuff. So everywhere I go, I always find a place where the locals buy stuff, the mall or whatever it is, you know, the shopping area. And I find out where they keep their gods, find out where that is. And if you travel around Europe, one of the things that's very clear is that you can see old churches that were built for Catholics in the Nordic countries. They are nothing like the churches you would see in Southern Europe. Why is that? Different people different understanding of Catholicism, different, essentially a different understanding of God. So you can, this idea of a unifying Christianity, a unifying religion, it, it just misses the mark. And, it, and also, I think to some degree, shows an ignorance of Catholicism, of Christianity, how Christianity spread in Europe. I, 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 it just, it, I think I may have wrote this, but it just sounds like the kind of stuff that Vermeule you know, it's the kind of stuff if you play a lot of video games, if you're really into, you know, that is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, oh, I'm going to be the prince, you know, I'll be the, I'll kill the black knight. I mean, I just, I don't know. It just sounds like escapism to me. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it was, I mean, especially in the United States where we've, we've never had anything close to a unifying religion other than progressivism. I mean, that's, that's our, our national religion is progressivism now, it, which is a sort of this post-Marx culturalism that comes out of, um, Gramsci and uh, what the heck is the guy's name? I forget. It was actually Paul Gottfried's uh, thesis advisor, um, Marcuse. Yeah, Marcuse, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's where all this stuff comes from. I mean, and this is the closest we have to a national religion now, and it's being imposed on us. But but yeah, I just, I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, I think religion is important. You know, I'm not, I, I, mean, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic schools, uh, Jesuits of all things. And, uh, you know, I, I would, yes, if given the choice, I would like to live, you know, of all the options that are currently available to me, if someone said, you can, you can live in a, in a Catholic theocracy, yeah, that would probably be better because there's a lot of things I wouldn't have to tolerate and, and the rules would be clear. You know, we'd understand, there wouldn't be any ambiguity, but most people wouldn't want to live that way. Most people would want to live in some other different kind of society. And uh, yeah, so you can't really have, at least in the United States, I'm not even really sure it works in South America anymore. I mean, you think about it, I mean, how, how many, I mean, I haven't looked up in a while, but how many people really are in South America attending services on a regular basis? I mean, I, I know that, and that used to be the most Catholic part of the Western Hemisphere. So, yeah, I, I just, I, 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 I think in a lot of ways what he's doing is sort of a dodge. You know, he's just trying to avoid having to say that, look, we, we have all the people we need. 
uh, yeah, well, you can make exceptions here and there, and I'm I'm okay with the exception stuff. I'm generally a zero immigration guy, but we've got a lot of we got a lot of foreign born people in this country who are not fitting in. We we got a lot of work to do to get these people assimilated into a society that has a chance of succeeding for a few more generations, and and that means we're going to have to be mean about it. Say no, you can't come in. I'm sorry, guys from Nigeria. It ain't it just isn't going to work. You have to find somewhere else to go. And, uh, and and these guys just, you know, they, they can't say that because, you know, for obvious reasons. Indeed, that's the politically correct clown world we're in. But yeah, now I want to touch upon this one tacky mag piece you wrote called The Death of Free Speech, because I found it very interesting in light of Elon Musk's recent purchase of Twitter, because that move has created a degree of optimism in like dissident rights circles, but you raise a pretty provocative point that if Musk like fully follows through with bringing free speech back on Twitter, it could prompt Apple, Amazon, and Google to reimpose like censorship on Twitter. In such a scenario, would you say that free speech is practically doomed no matter what? Or is there like a silver lining to all this? Yeah, I think absolute free speech can never happen. Particularly in a country like the United States, where we we have some, we look. This has always been a culturally diverse country. I, it, I, I, people get mad at me. You know, there's a certain kind of like you know like white nationalists that always get mad at me. <laughs> I point out that from the very beginning, the United States was a multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic society. Anyone who has traveled around this country can see it to this day. Yankee New England is nothing like Appalachia. It's not like Texas. It's not like Florida. It's just different, and it and as a result. You know, there's only really four ways to manage a multicultural, multi-ethnic society. You know, one is hard segregation. You divide everybody up in, in areas. And we actually tried this in the United States. Northern uh, cities used to have neighborhoods that were policed by the police. You know, if you're Puerto Rican and you left and you wound up in a black neighborhood, they'd pick you up and drop you back off in the Puerto Rican neighborhood. And and it still exists this way. A place like Baltimore, if you're a white guy driving through West Baltimore, and they'll stop you. You will get stopped by the cops because of the, what are you doing here? So that, that that used to exist, the hard hard segregation. Then soft segregation in the South was a little different in that there was a shared common space, but this cultural barriers. You know, the old joke was white people in the North would treat black people as equals as long as they don't live near them. And in the South, white people will be happy to live near black people, but just won't treat them as equals. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it was. But these are two types of segregation. And and we, we've decided that that can't work as Americans because it violates our, our sense of fairness, our sense of morality. Well, that, what, what does that leave left? Well, we're, we're currently working through what I call proportionalism. We have these ideals, all men are created equal, and we want equal justice for all, and everyone equal opportunity. And then we make a million exceptions. Oh, well, we're going to have to have a carve out for these guys, and we have to have three black left-handed ginger firemen here, and, you know— we just because we have to have right proportions, and we just keep violating these rules to the point where it, none of it makes any sense. You know, the, the famous example this is one that Amy Wax has used, where a fire department, a municipal fire department, is in federal court being sued by the federal government for discriminating against black guys, and then in a different courtroom in the same building, being sued by the federal government for discriminating in favor of black guys and losing both cases. Well, obviously, that's insane. It couldn't possibly be true. It's all over the same test. So the, the final option, though, is free association. You just allow people to work things out and find their, you know, find out where, they, where, where things fit for them. You know, because look, there's a lot of people who like being in cosmopolitan areas around lots of different people. And there's people who don't like that and want to be in, you know, monolithic sort of areas. And so that, that's what you have to do. And I think... What that means is that when it comes to speech is that there has to be a general agreement. There are things that we just don't say. And, and when people break that general agreement, we have to have some way of punishing them. And, and this again, this is fairly normal. You know, um, I, I don't know what kind of peer group you have, right? You, you said you're from Venezuela originally, right? So you probably have a lot of different friends that you hang around with, different ethnicities. Well, you're friends, and so you can joke about ethnic differences in a way that you would never tolerate from people who you don't, you don't know, because there's a different set of rules. There's private rules and public rules. There's private culture and public culture. I mean, this is just, you know, how it has to be. And because we're a big multi-ethnic, multicultural society, we say, look, the public rules are, 
you know, you can joke about some stuff, but, you know, you can't get too serious about these subjects. And we generally, these are things that we're going to agree not to talk about in the general public. You talk about them privately, but we're not going to talk about generally. And, and, but again, you know, if Twitter was the kind, if Twitter had the kind of people in charge who were good elites, they would understand this. And as I pointed out, they would use little tricks to allow the good people to discourage the, the troublemakers from saying bad things and lose little tricks to have the troublemakers kind of self-select out of the community. And this thing could self-police itself. I've seen this. It, it happens. It happens on message, message boards. It happens in my comment section. I make mean, it hundreds of comments every day. And they, they, the people who are jerks get downvoted and either stop being jerks or they leave. <laughs> That's what happens. And, uh, you know, so you, can, you can't really have truly free speech, but what you can have is sort of self-regulating speech. And I don't think anything's wrong with that. There's things I don't want to hear in public. I don't want to hear a man using four-letter language. I don't want to hear some woman talking about her crotch in public. I don't want to hear about that. Um, so I'm okay with you know having sort of a, a public morality that discourages certain kinds of behavior and uh, certain kinds of speech. That's okay. But um, you know, I mean, and it's the only. I think it's the only. It's the only only way we can have a liberal society and a generally free speech. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that as well. I don't think absolute free speech is very viable. I do believe that there are some stuff, like especially when we're talking about like demographics and other like biological realities that should be allowed to be discussed, but other forms of expression, it really just boils down to our social mores. And I agree with you. I don't really care for much of the forms of like vulgarity and obscenity, but it's actually hilarious how distorted some of these principles have become where you have like the left really championing obscenities and, and vulgarities, especially like when it comes to like porn, but then they'll try to shut down other forms of like that I believe are more productive types of speech. But yeah, that's where we're at in 2022. I live in Baltimore and I see more black people at lunchtime than most people see in a lifetime. And uh, I mean, this is a 70% black city. The, the surrounding metropolitan area is, I don't know, 50-something percent black. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and I'm, I, look, I'm a minority. I mean, I live here as a white guy. I'm a, very clearly a minority. And one of the weird things that happens in a place like this is that everyone is a race realist. And no one's offended by it. Everybody understands that the realities of, say, race and crime, uh, race and family formation. Uh, people get it. They know. And, and black people, they're not ashamed of it. They say, hey, this is just the way it is. And, and there's a, a, a black woman in my neighborhood. She always jokes whenever I see her. She's like, oh, you're still, still here. She's like, because when you, when you leave, all of us are going to put up our for sale sign. You know, the joke being, you know, when the, when the white guy leaves. You know? <laughs> well, there's nothing, there's no harm intended by that. She's not insulting me by saying this. You know, and, and that's, that, I, just, I think we have to trust people in a, in a way to get that. Most people do. I mean, I always tell people, particularly younger people, you're, you're what, your 20s maybe? Early 30s. No, there is. Okay. Go on YouTube and look up 1970s comedy shows like the Dean Martin Roasts or uh, old Johnny Carson clips. These guys would go on television, American television, and tell all kinds of ethnic jokes, Polish jokes, Jewish jokes, Catholic jokes, black jokes, white jokes, and all this stuff. Because everyone understood that, A, the intent was to make you laugh, and B, laughing at yourself is the best way to kind of keep everybody, you know, the, the, the uh, temperature down because, you know, there's always friction because of differences. It was an understanding that this is the best way to do it. And now we've become these humorless scolds lecturing everyone all the time on everything. And no one can laugh at themselves because to laugh at yourself could possibly offend somebody who might kind of look like you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just insane. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And, and and I think, to be honest with you, I think the people I blame the most for it are white people in America because they've self-segregated to the point where they, I don't think they really appreciate what their, their own country you know, you go out in the county around here outside the city, and there are neighborhoods that are organized. I mean, they're just all white. There's no black people there. But then there's other neighborhoods, middle class. They're all black, too. And there's this weird sort of insularity that comes with it. And by being insular, they no longer respect and appreciate the fact that people who are slightly different than you, they know this. They're not offended by the fact that they know they're slightly different than you. They're not going to be upset about it. And in fact, they might find it amusing. And you shouldn't be, you know, no one should be offended about about this kind of stuff. But you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm not 100% sure on that. I, I, when I say this, I, I stop and think and go, well, yeah, but, you know, you people are, you know, you know, you get conditioned. The culture beats you over the head with this stuff. Because, look, when I was a young man starting out in my work life, we didn't have diversity. We had tolerance training. 
where you got sent off and you got learned to be tolerant of people who are not like you. And we all looked at each other and said, well, wait a second. That means by definition, we don't like these people because you don't tolerate things you like. You tolerate things you don't like. And, and it was just a nutty thing. But, you know, that kind of conditioning after years and years and years, a couple of generations, I, you know, you can't really blame anybody for it other than the people in charge who, who thought this was a good idea. All right, let's go to another of your tacky pieces, specifically dealing with the Russo-Ukrainian war, which is the hot geopolitical topic of the day. And your title of this piece is aptly named The Reality Gap, which touches upon like the Western ruling class's total disconnection from reality, which can be said about a host of issues, but chiefly in this case, uh, this Russia-Ukraine conflict. So in what ways has this group been totally detached from the reality on the ground that's taking place in Ukraine? It really is a fascinating thing in a, in a way. I mean, I, I'm a pretty skeptical guy. and I, I, I have a joke that I use around the office, and that is you can never be too cynical. Because I, this is a good example. I, I thought that these, these idiots getting us into this mess, and, and look, Washington caused this problem. They could have, five years ago, they could have sat down with the Russians and said, look, there's these predominantly Russian-speaking areas, and they are. Look, I've, I've been in Eastern Europe. I, I, have, I know far more than most people do, let me put it this way. And I, I've met Azov guys, so I, I give you some ideas where I'm coming from here. These predominantly Russian-speaking areas should probably be just sort of autonomous zones. There's tons of them in Europe. There's Transnistria is a good example on the other side of Ukraine. And that'll make the Russians happy. That'll make the locals happy. The Ukrainians, typically, the average Ukrainian doesn't care. They understand that the Dnieper River is sort of this divide between East Slav and West Slav, so to speak. It, it's, you know, there's a lot of dispute about that. In other words, Washington could have, could have sat down with the Russians and worked all this out. But, you know, they, they got it wrong, made mistakes. And amazingly enough, instead of looking at it and saying, our, our, the guys we're supporting are going to be obliterated. The, the, the Russians are going to grind them up. And instead of taking that approach, they're trying to win, you know, uh, you know having the hottest Twitter take and, and you know, canceling <laughs> Russia, you know? I mean, it's just, I love yeah. this, like, oh my God, how insane are these people? Banning the letter Z. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and uh, you know, of course, you know, for, for me, that's a little scary. And, and uh, it's just, it's just crazy what's going on. And, and, what it, what occurred to me though is that what, what what would happen though? I mean, this kind of explains why they're they're looking under their bed every night, making sure that a Trump supporter is not there. That you know, there's they see someone wearing a red hat, and all of a sudden they're calling the police because there's a mega guy in the neighborhood, you know. And it, it's because they live in this sort of manufactured reality, this fantasy world of their own, and it's it's completely disconnected from daily existence. And look, this this is true of our politics entirely. I, look, I've had the, the pleasure of meeting a fair number of people in the political space, and they do not know basic things that you and I would take for granted about how people live in America. Going to the grocery store, uh, fixing up your house, you know, you, you know the little, all the little troubling things that you have to deal with in life in terms of where you live, what kind of place, you know, if you uh, have a place in the suburbs, you got all this sort of house maintenance crap you have to do. If you have a place in a city, you have security issues you have to concern yourself with. It's all stuff that we all know. We just take for granted. But the ruling class is completely divorced from this stuff. They're insulated from it. If you ever, have, you know, if you ever come to Washington, drive through their neighborhoods. It's it's like, um, you know, I, I joke around calling certain places uh, white nationalist, uh, you know, like Vermont. I say it's a white nationalist paradise. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and it's, that's a, it's a funny gag because I actually, there was a woman, she was a, a Dartmouth college professor. She wrote this USA Today thing about how uh, her daily struggle with against white nationalism and all this stuff. And so I did a podcast on this and called, you know, I did went through the demographics and, and I actually looked up where she lived and I found the closest black person. <laughs> you can actually do it. You know, I started using Google Maps, trying to figure out how I can find a black guy on the street, you know, and um well, I, I started getting emails from uh, Dartmouth professors. There was a couple of them sent me emails, like a little roaring with laughter. Like, yeah, you know, this. If you want to, you know, if you're a white nationalist, you move to Dartmouth. I mean, it's the whitest place on earth. But I mean, but it's true in in Washington too. There are parts of Washington D.C. you walk into, you're like, holy smokes, I'm no longer in Washington anymore. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's bougie. It's very very white. Uh, Northern Virginia is the same way, and these people live in a sort of. Um, insular world. Tucker Carlson's talked about this. He's done speeches on this. 
And they're just divorced from our daily reality. And you really see it with Ukraine. These are people who are supposed to be experts in this part of the world, and they don't know basic stuff. There's a, a woman, I think she's a, a, a British foreign secretary. She, she keeps confusing the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea, which are only, I don't know, 1,800 miles apart. I mean, she doesn't know, she doesn't know how to read a map. I mean, this is a woman who doesn't actually know how to read a map. And I never thought it was that bad, but um, and it's scary in a way because if they're that recklessly stupid, what else can they do? I mean, you bring the world to the point of a war between nuclear powers, you know. I mean, I don't. I think at that point is it's it's disqualifying. You know, I think you know if if Governor DeSantis runs for president in twenty twenty four, I would like to see him just fire everyone in the State Department. Just do that, and the world will be a better place. Just fire all of them. One hundred percent agreed, and. Yeah, like the foreign policy blob, along with the mass migration booster crowd, which there's actually a ton of overlap, all need to be reduced to pauper status, like in an ideal society, because those people are total parasites. Yeah, I mean, what has to happen, people don't realize the racket that works, is that what happens is that, um, like, all these people who are working at ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, and there's a bunch of them in American Enterprise, and there's some in Heritage, they keep their security clearance when they leave the government. And that allows them to work as sort of a sort of like a, a, a shadow foreign policy operation. And since they still have their security clearance, they're able to get jobs in the media, think tanks, uh, big banks, Goldman Sachs, and so forth. And they, they're able to launder information. This is how they make money. And then when there's a change of administration, we get a Republican. And well, there's a, the, the whole group leaves the State Department. They go into the these private sector jobs at the ISW and Goldman Sachs and, and whoever else. And those guys then switch back over. It's just a revolving door. Uh, for example, uh, 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 Victoria Nuland, who is is so dumb. Victoria Nuland, I've joked that she couldn't yes. count her boobs twice and come up with the same number. I mean, this <laughs> woman is just so dumb. But she keeps getting jobs. She just cycles out. She goes out to some other place. Anthony Blinken's another guy, just a dunce. Uh, there, there's a, yeah. a him and a, a few others. You know, they just worked at this think tank for four years during the Bush or Trump years. You know, and so what what needs to happen? is their security clearances need to be permanently revoked. And that removes them from the system. I mean, and, you know, Trump tried to do this with one guy. I think, what was the guy's name? Brennan, who was the uh, CIA head. And uh, the whole system came after him, like, you know, with their hair on fire because they understand the risk. You know, if you start pulling people's security clearances, you you remove their ability to keep working the system and making money. And But that's what has to happen, you know I mean? Because uh, otherwise, you know, it's... You know, I, I do fear, in all seriousness, I do fear that things will get really bad. And as much as, you know, we can all be angry at our rulers and the ruling class, and we get mad at, at Hollywood and entertainment and all that, you know, I don't, I don't want to live in a society that devolves into civil unrest. You know, you, you see the results of that. You travel around a bit. I mean, you've been through South America. You, you understand mm-hmm. things can get worse. They can get much worse. And uh, I hope it doesn't come to that, but I, I do fear that 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 very well may be in the cards for us. One final point that I want to touch upon because we originally talked about like immigration because this is like a huge issue that I argue was what got Trump elected in 2016 because of how he ran on a unapologetic immigration patriot platform, something the GOP largely avoided for the past few decades. And the issue has not gone away. In fact, the southern border is still being Zerg rushed as we speak under the Biden regime. And you have like a lot of people like Peter Brimlow of VDARE, who I actually previously interviewed, still pushing for the idea of an immigration moratorium to tackle this question head on. How viable is that policy goal? And what does like the future of any meaningful immigration reform look like in your view? Um, I think what we're going to need is some guy who came over the border to uh, blow up a rich guy. Um, and there's some there's a history here. There were some Italian guys who uh, packed a, a horse and wagon full of dynamite and set it off in Wall Street in 1917, something like that. Yes, yeah, Sacco and Vincetti or whatever. Um, no, it wasn't those guys. I mean, they were in that same, you know, these yeah. uh, Italian uh, uh, anarchist guys. And, and of yeah. course, there were uh, and these guys, the, the, these anarchists, they had letter bombs. They blew up the Los Angeles Times. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, But just by dumb luck, the post office managed to find out that they were sending letter bombs out. Only killed one person. Could have killed a whole bunch of, all to rich people. They were, they were going after rich people. And of course, you had a bunch of Jewish communists who were doing the same thing. That doesn't get talked about as much but for obvious reasons, but... 
Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you, you had this problem. And then what happened was, is all of a sudden, rich people got religion all of a sudden and said, whoa, whoa, whoa what, what, maybe we shouldn't be letting everybody in. Maybe we should be much more careful about these things. And within a couple of years, immigration was shut down. That was the end of it. It stayed shut down for 45 years and really only started to open up partially in the 60s. You know, and, and, and then in the 80s, of course, the, the, uh, the floodgates were open. And, you know, there was some immigration. There was a little here and there. And we had guest worker programs for um, agriculture, things like that. We still did those things. But uh, that's what's going to have to happen. You're going to have to have some guy come across the border. Who knows what his reason will be. And he came across the border for the purpose of, you know, causing mayhem, blow up some rich guy. And then all the other rich people are going to look around and say, well, hi, you know, maybe maybe we need to look at that border, you know. And, uh, you know, look, this happened in France. Uh, there was... Um, uh, geez, uh, they, they came in, uh, a bunch of a Muslim gunmen that came in and shot up to some um, concert or something like that. I forget what it was. And Macron, I think it was Macron, was either supposed to be there or had just been there. And all of a sudden, he started talking tough about the problems with uh, the, the Muslim migrants they have that encircle uh, out in these um, the suburbs of, of Paris and, and, you know, having to shut down immigration. It's only going to, it wouldn't take much, but I think that's what it's going to have to take. You know, you, you got to, you I, look, you know, you have to taste your own blood sometimes, you know, you know, you know, when someone punches you in the nose, you taste your own blood. I, all of a sudden the world gets very real to you. You, you stop, uh, you know, you, you have to put aside all these childish fantasies. And I think that's what our rich people need is to taste their own blood. And I, I say that, you know, metaphorically, but, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that, that's what has to happen, you know, and, and, and it will, I mean, eventually it will. I mean, cause logic, you know, I have a, I have an expression I use all the time and that is, your reality is that thing that does not go away when you stop believing in it. You can't be a country unless you can regulate who in the hell is coming in. And uh, right now we, we can't. And so we're not a real country. And at some point th th that reality was going to hit home to the people who are, who are responsible for this. And, uh, you know, it might not, you know, look, I mean, it looked at that, that shooting in Texas is a good example of how, how hard would it be for some guy who, for whatever reason is uh, torqued off at, um, some left-wing politicians, obviously it would be very easy. You know, I mean, if you can go into a school and do this, I mean, you can go anywhere and do it in this country. Uh, you know, we already had one guy shoot up uh, the congressional softball game. Yep. And, you know, if he had been, honestly, if he had been, a, a, you know, made a mistake and shot up the Democratic softball team, <laughs> we'd have an entirely different set, set of results, you know. So, I mean, I think that's what has to happen. And I think when that does happen, or an economic crisis, I think a serious economic crisis might, be this sort of uh, bring the war home moment for people, but yeah, it's gonna it's gonna have to be something that hurts the the wealthy class and gets them to think that yeah, it's in their best interest to shut it down, you know, because you, you never you can never talk people out of operating in their own interest as long as they continue to think that is in their interest to have open borders, they'll continue with open borders no matter how hard we vote, no matter how hard we lobby them, they have to be convinced that it's not in their interest anymore to have open borders that they're either at risk of the system com coming apart and revolution, civil unrest, or, you know, lunatics coming across the border for them. Well, this is a good place to bookmark our discussion. And thank you so much for coming on, Z-Man. I had a great time listening to what you had to say. Now, before you leave, tell my listeners where they can keep up with your latest work. Best place to go is thezman.com, T-H-E-Z-M-A-N.com. You can find all my links there. I post all my stuff there. There's something new every day. All right. Great stuff. And to all of my listeners, thank you all for tuning in. You're what keeps me going. And with that, El Nino has spoken.